And I've run out of pale ale And I feel like I'm in jail And my music bores me once again And I've been on the pinball And I no longer know it all And they say that you never know when you're insane Got fleas in the bedroom Got flies in the bathroom And the cat just finished off the bread So I walk over Soho And I read about Monroe And I wonder was she really what they said Got a call from a good friend Come on down for the weekend Didn't know if I could spare the time I knew a woman who was crazy About a boy who was lazy But it didn't work out Cause they just couldn't make it rhyme You turned your back on the party game yeah. Mama, if I keep my head clean Will I really have a good dream? Or will I wake up in confusion just the same? Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that's Brian Provero and Pinball. And that's one of the highlights of another excellent compilation from Grapefruit Cherry Red. It is Patterns on the Window, the British progressive pop sounds of 1974. And as always, I've got the compiler of that wonderful set, David Wells, here. A huge welcome, David. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So 1974, so we're looking at this through the British lens. An interesting period because there's quite a lot of not great stuff in the charts, but there's still a vibrant music scene and all sorts of stuff going on. And, and this set is a, a great example of that, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, as I mentioned in the sleeve notes, the uh, the best-selling singles of 1974 weren't anything to write home about, really. Um, a lot of uh, sort of middle-of-the-road stuff, things for, for, for maybe mums and dads to listen to. 
but there, there was some good stuff around and uh this hopefully collects quite a lot of it like i say there were, there were a lot of uh good singles around and so we we've kind of uh compiled the more interesting elements of that scene rather than the kind of hardcore progressive rock stuff or anything like that so uh this is um pop really with a bit more ballast than the um records that were reaching the top of the charts in those days and I was really pleased you uh, picked Brian Provero because um, I did an interview with him last year, still making music and uh, still uh, good stuff. As I mentioned it to him at the time, lots of gems in that period. Although, was he a, a one-hit wonder? He was really, although his, his other albums uh, for Chrysalis um, and singles in the next two or three years are all really interesting. Things like Running Through the City and the Good Brown Band song. They got quite a lot of play on Radio 1, but somehow he never quite recaptured the magic of pinball in terms of, you know, chart success. Yeah, I do remember it was a few years ago, it was included on, on a compilation called Guilty Pleasures. <laughs> and I'm still not quite sure why, why it would be a guilty pleasure to enjoy pinball. <laughs> it beats me. I mean, this um, Fly Now solo McCartney-esque at times. There's a bit of Bowie in there as well. I mean, it was 73, 74, so uh, I think he, he picked up on some of the influences. Like you say, there's a, a McCartney kind of um, element to the songwriting. But it is all kind of grist to the mill, really, and uh, I think he viewed himself primarily as a as an actor rather than a, a kind of musician, singer-songwriter. Yeah, so he's mainly known for that now. He does a lot of voiceovers these days, but... Uh, Pinball is is a classic pop song, really. Um, like I say, I'm not quite sure how it comes into the uh, category of guilty pleasures <laughs> to enjoy something that that's good. But there we go. Such is life. We go to Cockney Rebel and Judy Teen here, and um, was there a lot of hype around them? There was EMI. I mean, I I was told that there was no way that Cockney Rebel weren't going to be successful because EMI lavished so much money on them they um basically signed both queen and cockney Rebel around the same time at that point queen were a hard rock band and they were emi viewed them as maybe a slightly younger led zeppelin for the heavy rock market and and cockney rebel were clearly influenced by well, a combination of bowie and, and and roxy music i think and their first single was, was sebastian which is a bit of a a fantastic way of announcing yourself, but it wasn't really sort of um, top 20 material. So um, Steve Hardy was asked to come up with a, a hit single and Judy Teen was the result. Was this the original Cockney Rebel? Yeah, they they kind of, um, after the first album, which was The Human Menagerie, he kind of dissolved the band or, or they left him, depending on who you believe, and put together a new lineup. And subsequently it became Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, but... Uh, in the early days, they were just known as Cockney Rebel. And that was the disillusion of that original band, and the the friction there was, the, I think, the inspiration by Come Up and See Me Make Me Smile, wasn't it? That's right, yes. Um, was it was it Bebop Deluxe they joined, a couple of them? I think that's right. But anyway, yeah, they. Uh, I think he always considered himself to be like, it was his band and, and they had to do what they were told kind of thing. And he wasn't short of self-confidence and... Uh, yeah, so so make me smile, come up and see me was the result of that with um, a friend of his uh, on on backing vocals, Tina Charles, and her boyfriend uh, Martin Jay, who did all the uh, the Bowie and Queen cover versions for the Top of the Pops albums. <laughs> so yeah, when when it's on Top of the Pops, you got Jim Cregan on on guitar miming to the backing vocals, but uh, like I say, it was a couple of outsiders, friends of of Steve Harley's and his days on the local newspaper in London. 
who helped him out. But anyway, that, that's, that's slightly going on from, from Judy Dean, which was a year or two earlier. mentioned Jim Cregan in, in a later incarnation of uh, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel and there's a yeah. tenuous link to our next track uh, Ronnie Lane and the Poacher given the uh, the link to Rod Stewart so Ronnie Lane the Poacher is that the back end of the faces it was just after Ronnie Lane had left the faces 
after Rod Stewart's kind of a bit uh, unkind about the Last Faces album with Ronnie Lane, Ooh La La, which is basically a Lane uh, Lane showcase in some ways, as, as Rod was kind of, and he seemed detached by that point. So yeah, Ronnie Lane then left the Faces and he put his own band together, Slim Chance, and he had a, a top 20 hit with Cal Come, which I remember distinctly. Uh, he played live on uh, Top of the Pops and changed the lyrics from How Come to How's Mum. <laughs> but, uh, that was followed by The Poacher, which I think is a better record, but didn't quite make the cut in terms of the charts. But with its lyrics and its uh, unique sound, which I think only gets better with age, it's a, it's a track that truly stands the test of time. It's a fantastic lyric, yeah. He was always underrated, I thought, as a lyricist, even you know when he was writing things like Ichiku Park and The Small Faces. And this is, uh, this is a beautiful lyric, but good lyric is nothing without a good tune, and this is a great tune.
we've had uh, Jim Cregan, Ronnie Lane, and, and again, another connection to Rod Stewart. We've got Ron Wood here with I Can Feel the Fire. So was this his post-Faces project? It was not so much post as during, really. I think uh, the Faces were slowly disintegrating. He made the album I've Got My Own Album to Do, which a lot of people at the time thought was a dig at uh, Rod Stewart, who <laughs> was known to put his own solo career first, but... He always claimed it was he had so many star guests on it that they needed to get back to their own work, and so um, they'd say, hey, "We've got to, we've got to nail this one quickly." I've got I've got my own album to do, and it includes people like George Harrison and a couple of Stones, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So uh, yeah, it probably was a case of um, it was a fun project for him, really. And in fact, I can feel the fire, which has got Mick Jagger prominently on backing vocals. I can feel the file was included on the Faces live shows towards the end. So, yeah, they did did overlap with um, the solo album and, and the end of the Faces. I think by that point, he was actually filling in for Mick Taylor on, on Black and Blue anyway. So he was kind of semi-detached from um, Faces and edging towards the Stones even at that point.
we go on to Slade and Far Far Away and again Slade the quality of the songwriting was outstanding but this showed a, a real added depth to the group rather than the more anthemic louder material yeah I think they'd um, they'd obviously got a reputation for the, the stomping sort of glam rock stuff but they did have a more introverted feel to, to some of their better stuff as well and I think by 74 they kind of taken that you know, the new Lennon McCartney aspect of Jim Lee and uh, Noddy Holder to heart and this to me. But it was recorded for um, for the film Slade in, in Flame and you can tell that uh, it's much more wordy than the uh, the previous Slade songs and I think they were taking themselves quite seriously by that point and trying to develop as songwriters. This came out in advance of the film Slade in Flame, then? It came out just before the... Uh, yeah, in fact, it came out in October, and then the soundtrack album appeared in December, and then the film came out a month later, so it was all a bit of a, a mishmash. These days, obviously, everything would be timed to coincide and, and come out exactly at the same time. But uh, in those days, it was um, they needed to get a new single out and uh, far, far away was considered to be um, probably the most commercial, even though it was quite reflective. And in fact, it reached number two. It was only um, Ken Booth's Everything I Own, his version of Everything I Own, the Bread song that uh, stopped it getting to the top spot. I've seen the yellow lights go down the Mississippi I've seen the bridges of the world and they're for real I've had a red light off the wrist without me even getting kissed It still seems so unreal I've seen the morning in the mountains of Alaska I've seen the sunset in the east and in the west I've sang the glory that was Rome and passed the hound dog singers home It still seems for the best and I'm far, far away With my head up in the clouds And I'm far, far away With my feet down in the crowds Letting loose around the world But the call of home is loud Still as loud Lights from high upon Montmartre And felt the silence hang below in no man's land And all those sledge snakes were fighting It wasn't only from the wine It still seems all it had And I'm far, far away With my head up in the clouds And I'm far, far away With my feet down The Grand Bahama Island stories carry on And those that get the smile stay in your memory for a while There still seems more to come And I'm far, far 
And another great group from the era was Roxy Music, and we have a really good time. So this is post-Brian Eno, but still in that first wave of Roxy Music, which has got that more exciting sound. I think so, yeah. I think the um, two albums after Eno, they're not quite as adventurous as as the stuff, the first two albums that were made with him, but... uh, They've still got some um, some really daring uh, tracks on there, and this one, a really good time. I think that the single from it was All I Want Is You, which seemed to be a bit rocking by numbers for me, but um, something like A Really Good Time is a, is a great song. And yeah, probably not commercial enough to be a single, but um, like I said, it's on the album Country Life, which was their fourth album. Obviously had that kind of fairly explicit front cover that... <laughs> When we were teenagers, we all thought it was fantastic, but um, yeah, it did get banned in some countries for the uh, for being a little bit too explicit. But um, yeah, this is a, another great song and uh, just shows what an intelligent, clever songwriter Brian Ferry was in the early days. She never goes 
Next we go to Fox and Only You. So this was set up by, was it Kenny Young, the songwriter? That's right, the late Kenny Young. It was his brainchild, really. Um, exiled American. Um, he worked on the Clodagh Rogers' early 70s songs as well. This is quite interesting because uh, it's not generally known that the, the single Only You became a big hit, but that was 1975. It actually came out initially about six months earlier. And it's a slightly different version, much uh, slightly slower mix with a different lead vocal and and less sound effects as well. So this is it, and um, most people are not aware that this actually exists. But uh, yeah, it was actually a hit second time around, as opposed to the first release of it. Very much of its time, some of the original press releases and publicity that focused on the, <laughs> the female aspect of the group, you wouldn't get that today. In that, if you look on the uh, the overseas picture sleeve covers there's nusha fox obviously the famous nusha yeah. and the other three girls or guys i'm sure one of them is kenny young uh, and herbie armstrong is one of the others i'm sure obviously there's not much good on the uh, on a podcast but <laughs> <laughs> if you can find a, an overseas release of the original uh, single in 74 then um, yeah it came with a press release saying that fox were four voracious girls who recorded only you while they were completely nude uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, all very odd stuff and quite gratuitous as well. Uh, Nusha was the only female involved in it. Susan Trainer, to give her a real name, previously with a folk band called Wooden Horse. But, uh, yeah, definitely the press release is definitely of its era <laughs> and uh, you wouldn't get away with that stuff now.
a shifting tone to Richard and Linda Thompson when I get to the border. They must have been at their peak by around 1974, surely. I think this is one of the greatest albums ever made. I want to see the bright lights tonight. Uh, and it's amazing to think that it was hanging around for nine months or so because the A&R man at Ireland didn't like folk music and <laughs> didn't want it to come out. Well, there was no market for it. In some ways, he was right. There wasn't a market for it. It didn't sell at all. But uh, to me, it's a, it's a classic folk rock album. We're only about halfway through the show, but it does show that there's so many different sounds going on in 1974 more broadly it's very fractured in terms of the the music that was being made it was yeah there was a divide i remember reading the uh, music papers at the time the nme melody maker sounds and they were always, always a little bit snobby towards straightforward pop music these tracks are kind of things that fall between the cracks. They're not uh, they're not kind of hard rock. They're not progressive rock, really. Um, they're not straightforward pop. They've got an intelligent quirkiness to them. A lot of the uh, a lot of the tracks.
think that's true of the next song, Costa Fine Town by Splinter, which came out on George Harrison's label, Dark Horse, and has been tied up uh, in terms of um, using anything on Dark Horse because of um, problems with the label, um, of anybody actually keeping the bands on it happy and uh, allowing people to use Splinter stuff on, on the issues, but that's finally been resolved, so it was... Um, very good for to actually be allowed to uh, to use Costa Fine Town on it again a one off hit single they never really followed it up in any kind of way and uh, yeah just a just a great one off top twenty song really and it does show that there is a bit of a case to be made about George Harrison's production sound this is better than the material that George Harrison was doing in 1974. I think so, yeah. I hope nobody actually told him that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously, Splinter were Northern. They came from um, just outside South Shields. And Costa Fine Town is actually um, about a local area of South Shields called Costa Fine Town, but spelled completely differently. And um, so, yeah, it does have that kind of same sort of nostalgia that, that bands like Lindisfarne had, that kind of nostalgia for their northern roots. And I imagine that probably appealed to uh, to Harrison. And uh, the singer, Bill Elliott, had actually been on God Save Us, uh, a single that had been on Apple a couple of years earlier. So he was kind of hanging around, and I think he was a, a protege of uh, Mal Evans, who was kind of uh, Beatles' right-hand man. So, um, so yeah, it all came together. Uh, like I say, the, the, the legal complexities of, of Dark Horse meant that it hasn't been able to be included on on your shoes for some while now for many years in fact so yeah it, it's good to be able to put it in context on the 1974 compilation and uh, it does show just how many sort of um, minor gems there were that came out that year this is a, an outstanding track so um, let's play it So long. 
before we were discussing the various threads and different sounds and and here we have Dr. Feelgood and, and Roxette. So this shows the roots of pub rock which kind of influenced punk. Yeah, I think so. Um Dr. Feelgood attracted a kind of a younger audience really. Um people like uh, Paul Weller, I think, and uh, Graham Parker as well. It's interesting, you just mentioned about the different strands of that year that, that are on this compilation, and Dr. Feelgood, again, and not, like no other band on this compilation, really. Um, it is a kind of... Um, obviously, they, they've been um, categorised as pub rock, but it's kind of like... Um, a really kind of manic R&B, almost like 64 again, but in a slightly different setting. Obviously, they had the famous Back to Mono slogan as well. And yeah, rock set is... You can imagine how after... After they started playing the pub rock circuit, they were suddenly kind of filled with confidence that they could blow anybody else off the stage. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I, I do think Dr. Feelgood were a massive influence on, on pub rock. They're just that kind of um, aggressive um, sort of three chord um, R&B based sound, really. Uh, no messing about almost straight for the jugular. This is prime Wilco Johnson era Dr. Feelgood as well, isn't it? Yeah, this this was in the early days when they had the classic lineup. Um and yeah, I just mentioned about going for the jugular. In fact the lyrics almost almost there. Yeah. Take that literally. And it's it's quite aggressive in terms of what he's gonna to do to his woman if she's not, if she doesn't behave herself while he's away. And if you see the footage of them from um shows like um the old Great Whistle Test, it's quite a threatening uh, performance as well. So again, something you probably wouldn't get away with these days, but um, nobody cared about sexism in in 74. In fact, I think somebody mentioned that they looked like villains from the Sweeney. (laughs) Uh, And there is an element of that to it. Yeah. <laughs> 
So next we've got Brinsley Swartz, The Ugly Things. There's a Brinsley Swartz box set out at the minute, isn't there? That's right, yes. I think uh, Ian Gomer's donated at least two or three um, CDs of live material from that time. Yeah, I mean, Brinsley Swartz, we, we followed Dr. Feelgood, both allegedly a pub rock, although they sound nothing like each other. <laughs> it just goes to show how look, pub rock wasn't really a sound. It was a... It was a point in time and a certain geographical uh, place, really. So, yeah, The Ugly Thing shows it's very much a kind of um, early Beatles, like Not A Second Time or um, No Reply, something like that. It just shows, again, what, what a clever writer Nick Lowe was becoming. And obviously, this is 74, and within a couple of years, he, um, he would be one of the mainstays at Stiff Records. And another aspect that's interesting of Brinsley Swartz is that after the split, virtually all the band members became part of the rumour and, and played with many other great acts. So the, the influence of the Brinsleys just spread out. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of those pub rock bands, I mean, we mentioned that uh, Graham Park was a big fan of, of Dr. Feelgood and, and the backing band, The Rumour, were based around... Um, uh, Brinsley Schwartz and, and uh, the keyboardist Bob Andrews. So yeah, it was a it was a fairly self-contained scene and the pub rock thing. And uh, obviously, it's motivated partly by a desire to cut down on on expensive petrol costs at the time. And so there was like a, a little network of bands playing locally and influencing uh, influencing each other. In fact, we also got Ace on this set as well, although they're not including it uh, today. But um, with how long and they were another pub rock band who uh, who suddenly had their 15 minutes of fame really at that time I'm gonna make it up to you somehow for all I put you through for the ugly little things I do yeah I'm gonna make it up to you somehow cause you understand so well with something I can tell is on my mind Yeah Oh On my mind I'm gonna try to get a hold of myself
Next, we've got Byzantium. I'll just take my time. So, where where are we in the Byzantium chronology? Because I know Chaz Chankel was in them at one point, but I think he'd left by now. He'd just gone after their, their second album. I think it was for A and M. Had a bit of a Grateful Dead influence, and he wasn't into that. So he'd left. Mick Barrican was on lead guitar. I saw him without knowing it was him about 30 years later when he became Shane Fontaine and was part of the oh. Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. So, yeah, all these people, they all kind of, um, well, a lot of them did resurface and, and adopted new identities, if you like. So, uh, yeah, this is um, this is after they've been dropped by A&M and also their manager, Billy Gaff, who decided that Rod Stewart was probably a better bet in terms of <laughs> making money from his... Uh, his his acts um so yeah they they didn't have a record company didn't have management so they took matters into their hands and and made independently made a, a another album live in studio only pressed 100 copies it's worth a fortune these days and it's probably their best album no producer influences no band manager telling you what to do but that was pretty much it they didn't really get a, a new deal on the back of it and um, they went their separate ways
Now we've got one of the big names, uh, Mark Boland, T-Rex and Venus Loon. This is kind of where the glam era had started going downhill and Mark had got more of that soul influence. Yeah, he'd hooked up with uh, Gloria Jones, uh, American soul singer, best known for Tainted Love. And I think she had an influence on his music, although I think also he was kind of losing his way a little bit uh, by that point. But Venus Loon is the lead track on, on the album Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow. And I don't really understand why they didn't release this as a single. It's a really, um, really strong song, really catchy uh, melody. And it's one of the last recordings they made before Tony Visconti pulled the plug and, and quit as the band's producer. And uh, Mark Boland briefly went with Gloria Jones to America, although he came back a year or so later, I think. So, yeah, this is uh, something that, although the glory days were just about behind them, you know, the T-Rextasy um, days, as it were, when he was the biggest thing in pop music, I think he'd been overtaken by by now by Bowie and one or two of the younger names coming through. But... Uh, Venus Loon is, to me, one of the great late T-Rex tracks. Teenage Dream was the single in that period, wasn't it? Yeah, Teenage Dream, it was a top 20 hit. It was a bit bombastic for me, I must admit, but um, it's it's good enough. And it was an example of him trying to change his sound as well, that, that big kind of melodramatic ballad. But, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> like, like a few people, I had a bit of a problem with his lyrics, you know, and um, mm. believe me, Pope Paul, my toes are clean, is, um, <laughs> yeah... There we go. Uh, each to his own, but um, Venus Loon is so fast and so contagious that I don't even really notice the lyrics as they go by. <laughs> See? 
Now to a group I wasn't familiar with, and that's Tranquility and the single Midnight Fortune. So who were Tranquility? Well, that's a good question. They uh, they made a couple of albums for for Epic, and were managed by um, Donovan's former manager Ashley Kozak. They had that kind of English version of Crosby, Stills and Nash to to their albums, uh, and they supported the Birds as well as uh, the recently formed Eagles as well. Made two albums, didn't really achieve anything. They then signed to Ireland and released Midnight Fortune, which I remember from the time getting a, a lot of radio play, really catchy pop song, nothing really like their two albums, but it didn't quite make the charts. And after that, they kind of split up in the middle of making a third album. The main singer and guitarist, Terry Shaddock, then moved to LA, Los Angeles, and uh, wrote hits like Physical for Olivia Newton-John. So <laughs> you never know where people are going to turn up next. But uh, this is them a few years earlier. Yeah, and it's, again, should have been a hit, but wasn't. Your head is spinning time. 
we close with Brian Ferry and the In Crowd. Brian Ferry had a bit of a parallel career to uh, Roxy, didn't he, where he was doing mainly covers? That's right, yeah. I mean, a lot of frontmen, when they make albums without the band, they kind of go in the same direction, really. But he obviously made a distinction between the kind of more art, pop, art rock sound of, of Roxy Music and his own solo work, which... Um, which is mainly him um, covering um, some of his favourite songs. Uh, on this occasion, it's the In Crowd, the um, Dobie Gray classic, of course. And yeah, this is um, this is interesting because it, it um, obviously the original is quite a swinging little club song, and this is quite uh, quite strident for you know a lounge lizard, uh, lounge lizard like Brian Ferry in those days. Um, but uh, it's very aggressive, completely different really to the original. And uh, again, it was a uh, it was a hit. It was the first single from the second solo album, Another Time, Another Place. And, um, yep, another really striking song that was a big hit in 1974. Out of any of the uh, podcasts that we've done, David, this is one of the more diverse ones. And despite the quality being consistently high, and uh, it's been really enjoyable. I highly recommend Patterns on the Window, the British progressive pop sounds of 1974. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk about some of these things. Obviously, I was quite young at the time, and uh, the music that, uh, that hits you when you're in your early teens can, tends to stay with you, I think. So, yeah, it was a real pleasure to, to put it together. Thanks for inviting me, Jason.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.